0: Let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm 22 on our way to John 19, Psalm 22. I recommended that you read Psalm 22 in preparation for this sermon because it is the most graphic account of our Lord's crucifixion death and in the first person. It isn't Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John describing in the third person about him. It's him describing himself, what he endured on the cross. But I want the last verse. I want the last verse. And I hope that we're all gripped by this verse. Now let's go ahead and get the last two verses. And don't tempt me because I'll back all the way up into this psalm because there's a change. About eight verses back up as to what the effect should be of the death of Jesus Christ. Verse 30, a seed shall serve him. That is us. A seed shall serve him. It shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. The Lord Jesus Christ had no children of his own. We are his children. He will say to God the Father as he presents all of us, Behold, I and the children children which thou hast given me. Hebrews chapter 2. They shall come. Verse 31, and shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born, that he hath done this. Yes. Amen. And so we get to share with our children, we get to share with our grandchildren that he hath done this. And I get to share with you. It is a great humbling privilege to tell you about the death of the Lord Jesus Christ today from John 19. They shall come and shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born, that he hath done this. And amen. John chapter 19. John 19. We started out earlier this morning with Galatians 6 and verse 14. But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. Let's glory in the cross of Christ today. John chapter 19 has three sections. Dividing a chapter is very helpful to me. and I hope it's helpful to you. I think most of you like the verse divisions that were put into this Bible hundreds of years after the Bible was written because they help you find things and they help break it into digestible pieces John 19, the first 12, 16 verses, the first 16 are the second trial before Pilate. There was a first trial in John 18, then he was taken to Herod, then he came back, and there was this second trial that ran through the 16th verse. We're going to cover verses 17 through 30 right now, which is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ by John's account. And then verses 31 through 42 are his burial. And John's very particular about some aspects of his body and his burial, which we'll get to next Lord's Day, the Lord willing. I am going to pursue a course this morning that I hope you'll understand and will be beneficial to you. We are going to go through these verses very quickly. Then I am going to read you, in effect, a timeline that incorporates all four Gospels. Because John only gives us a little bit. That's why we had read to you Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account of the crucifixion, because they give a lot of details John doesn't. And when I said that John almost appears trivial, I meant no disrespect to the Bible. It's different in John, and he's got a theme and a course that he's following. And that's to convince you that Jesus is the Son of God. And so he explains more fulfillment of Scripture than any of the other gospel writers. Because that's what he wants us to do, is to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, he told us that. I'm going to proceed quickly through these verses. Because we have five events. He's led to Golgotha with thieves. Pilate wrote an inscription on the cross. The soldiers divide his clothes. He assigns his mother to John. He receives vinegar and dies. There's no darkness. There's no, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? There's no thief. Not here. But we'll go back and catch that before we finish. And so I hope you'll understand how quickly we go through these verses. But I will read them to you first. Because preaching according to the Bible, is they read in the book in the law of God distinctly, and gave the sense. John chapter 19, beginning at verse 17. And he, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew, Golgotha, where they crucified him, and two other with him, on either side, one, and Jesus in the midst. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city, and it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Then said the chief priests of the Jews to Pilate, Write not the King of the Jews, but that he said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to every soldier a part, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said therefore among themselves, Let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, They parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother, and the disciples standing by, whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her unto his own home. After this, Jesus knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar, and put it upon hyssop, and put it to his mouth. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Amen and amen. Amen. Join with me, brethren, in the minutes that we have together, to go through this passage quickly and look at these five events that John, by inspiration, chose to give us And then let's run through all the events in order very quickly, and that is how we will cover the crucifixion of Jesus Christ this day at this time. Verse 17. Verses 17 and 18 are Jesus being led to Golgotha with thieves. Verse 17, and he bearing his cross went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha. He, bearing his cross, went forth. The Lord Jesus Christ bore his cross to begin with, but then it was transferred to Simon the Cyrenian, who either bore the second half of it, half of the weight, or he bore it the, 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 the last part of the trip till Golgotha. What we are able to understand is that the spot of execution outside the city was only 650 yards away, a third of a mile, away from... Pilate's judgment hall where a sentence had been issued against the Lord Jesus. Now he's bearing a cross. I am not going to tell you about the Greek word behind cross because all it has done is create confusion and heretics. Staros is unknown in specific intent, but cross is not. The Jehovah's Witnesses have made much mileage out of that Greek word by claiming Jesus died on a pole. Jesus didn't die on a pole because he died on a cross. The English word cross does not allow for one member. It's got to have a cross member. There are four ideas about the death of Jesus Christ, and I'm not going to get into them. I have links in my outline for them. I love the cold case man that was once a cold case detective... And he has spent the last 20 years of his life doing cold case research on the Bible to prove things like this. There is a pole, Jehovah's Witnesses. There is a T, capital like this. There is a cross, and there is an X. And those are the four ideas. He will prove, and I'm not going to waste your time with it, but he will prove that it's this. Well, we would call our lowercase t with that cross member, And above Jesus' head on this extension is where the Bible says the inscription was placed that said, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Is our English word cross possible of interpretation of a pole? No, because it's got to have something cross. And so we love our English word cross. And so we use it. Crucifixion was to be nailed to that wooden cross. In the Bible, it's called a tree at times. And when it's called a tree, don't resent that choice of terminology because the Bible wants us to know, especially Galatians 3.13, that Jesus was hung on a tree to add to the curse of the law against him because the Bible said in the Old Testament, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. The cross was of wood it would receive nails into it through his hands and feet, and he was suspended by the weight of those nails on his hands, wrists, and feet on that cross. Roman crucifixion. Pilate's sentence was crucifixion because that's what the Jews had demanded, the Roman form of execution. It's a horrible way to die compared to what we do today in America with lethal injection or electrocution. It takes much longer. Jesus is going to be on the cross alive for six hours. He's going to hang there some while after he dies. While they wait as it gets closer toward the Sabbath day, then they will rush those bodies off, and they will break the legs of the thieves beside him because they are not dead yet. Jesus was dead already because he laid his life down. It was not taken from him. He laid his life down. The most graphic emotional record of the six hours on the cross is in Psalm 22. No gospel account comes close to what is said there about the grief, shame, suffering, pain, joints, nakedness of the Lord Jesus in the first person as he describes, they stare at me. I hope there is aroused in you a sense of his shame And I hope there is aroused in you a sense of anger. I would like to crawl through a time tunnel and meet those that sat there and stared at him naked on on that cross. But he did that for us and he chose to do it. He could have blinded them as men were blinded throughout the pages of scripture, but he didn't. He left their eyes wide open for the shame of the cross. We should know how Jesus died and the chosen details in the Bible, but we do not need to go beyond it. We don't want to go beyond Scripture. We don't want to come short of Scripture. Many men have died equal or worse deaths due to war, torture, disaster, disease, than Jesus died physically. But remember, there are three aspects to Jesus' death that add to his death so that no man has ever come close to what Jesus did. And that is the psychological aspects of it of being deserted by all his friends, all the false accusations, all the mocking and the reproach. Then there was the spiritual conflict between him and the devil and there was the divine conflict between him and God as God forsook him in that sustaining relationship of fellowship they had always had. Right. No man's ever suffered anything like that. No man has ever walked with God like Jesus did. Right. And to have that all ripped away on the cross because of our sins, the combination is terrible. And we've been over that combination before. God is able to provide very detailed descriptions of things, but he did not do it with the cross. Think about that for a minute. Do you know how detailed they can get? Do you want to read the book of Leviticus with me right now to talk about the rising of the redness in the scab of leprosy? Do you remember? Have you, or do you just ignore the book of Leviticus because it's too detailed? The book of Leviticus has all those details. How about Jehu when he drew a bow at, with full strength and drove the arrow into the back of King Jehoram and it says it came out the front? I mean, the Bible is able to give us graphic descriptions, but there are not graphic descriptions like that except for Psalm 22. I want to follow the Bible. We are not saved by gore. Right, right. We're saved by his death. Amen. Now hear me very carefully on what I'm about to say. Brother John MacArthur, I am so sorry that people are so ignorant to accuse you of heresy for this position. The blood doesn't save us. Right. The death saves us. Amen. Right. When blood leaves the body, death results. Right. We're saved by the death of his son because the wages of sin is yeah. death. It sounds like a minor distinction, but let me remind you. Mel Gibson had 5,000 evangelical pastors together to promote his movie, his Catholic animated crucifix called The Passion of the Christ, that was released in 2004. He had 5,000 pastors together, and he gave them a lesson about the blood of Christ and its power by explaining to them that if Jesus had had a finger pricked with a pen and one drop of blood had escaped, that drop of blood was sufficient to redeem the human race. No, it wasn't. Jesus had fallen off his tricycle, fallen out of trees, practicing slinging stones at each other, been hit in the head. He'd had wounds and bled before, and it didn't do anything for anyone. Right. It was his death. Yeah. You know, there are things that when you preach, you're nervous because you don't want anyone to misunderstand you. And I don't want anyone to misunderstand me. Blood splattering everywhere was not the salvation. That was the suffering. And the Apostle Paul, when he looks at that aspect of suffering, he would say, Lord, help me to be conformed and have fellowship with that suffering. Let me go take some beatings myself so that I can be in union with Christ that way. We're saved by his death. Crucifixion's a terrible way to die. And he bore his cross beginning, and you know that Simon was picked up later from Cyrena City in Libya, and he was there coming into Jerusalem, out of the country, And he was drafted into service by the Romans to bear the cross along with Jesus. We have lots of details about the tabernacle. We have lots of details about the temple in the Bible. But those details are left out. And So we want to stick with Scripture. And John is not going to give us very many details at all. But we'll come back and we'll gather all the Gospels together. And I had you read Psalm 22 last night, which is, you know, basically the five places in the Bible where our Lord's crucifixion is described. Isaiah 53 describes it as well, and we've been there many times. Our submission to God's inspired choice is an aspect of our trusting His words as perfect. His words are perfect. We don't need to add to His words with pictures or movies. We just want to take all of His words and put them together and understand the sense of those words. Without being disrespectful to our Lord, John's goal is faith not grief, faith, not grief. John left out all the various mockings, darkness over the earth, and my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But he included much more of the mockings during his trial, and he has the full exchange between Pilate and Jesus in both trials, which the other writers don't have. So when you read John, if the other writers have taken care of something in detail, he'll ignore it and give you new material that you didn't have. And it's all going to be driving toward the fact that Jesus was the Son of God. Paul would write Timothy and tell Timothy Jesus had a good confession before Pilate. Well, you're not going to get that in Matthew. You're not going to find it in Mark or Luke. It's in John, that good confession that Jesus had before Pontius Pilate the governor. Into a place called the place of a skull. In Hebrew, Golgotha. In Latin, transliterated into Greek, Calvary. Calvary equals Golgotha, equals the place of a skull, equals the place of execution of the Romans just outside the city of Jerusalem where they executed criminals. There's no evidence that there was a hill. Oh, that's terrible. What about the old rugged cross? It says on a hill far away. Well, it wasn't on a hill. There's no hill mentioned. When you think of Jerusalem and how it was turned into a fortress and was so difficult for Titus to siege and destroy in 70 AD, to think of a hill outside it, above the city, very difficult to even imagine, but there's no hill or mount. You know, one of the most popular Baptist churches in Greenville this morning is Mount Calvary, but there's nothing in the Bible that says Calvary was a mount. All the Bible says about Calvary is Luke's account, The only time the word Calvary is in the Bible is in Luke 23, which our brother Mark read to us. It means the place of a skull, Latin through Greek. Golgotha in the other three accounts because it was Hebrew for the place of a skull, the execution place of the Romans. This is where Jesus is going the 650 yards or third of a mile from Pilate's judgment seat to his crucifixion. And we have it right here in verse 17. And he bearing his cross went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew, Golgotha. He went forth. Paul will argue from that point in Hebrews chapter 13 that Jesus went out of the city and we should be willing to go out of fellowship of this world to follow Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 13 verses 11 through 13, based on this fact that Jesus left the city. And we should be willing to leave to follow Jesus Christ, those that would keep us from him. Verse 18, where they crucified him. They nailed his hands and feet to a wood torture device to suspend his weight on them and left him there to die. The wooden torture device is called a cross or tree in the Bible, both of which are true, because the cross had a cross member and the cross was made from wood, which comes from a tree. And I've explained to you why the word tree is important. We trust the English word cross more than the Greek staros because we understand that cross is never a pole and storos can be. Just like we understand the Greek word baptizo better by our English word baptize as Baptist because we have in the Bible synonyms for baptism of berry, plant, much water, down into and up, out of, which explain our English word better than you can prove from baptizo. And when any, by the way, when anyone ever questions you about the word baptizo, just ask them, what language is that? When they say Greek, you can then ask them, do you think that Greeks know Greek better than you do? And I hope they'll say yes. And then you should say, how do the Greeks baptize? The Greek Orthodox Church. They baptize babies. How do they do it? Three times underwater. <laughs> in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Ghost. Now that's tri immersion. So they understand what the word means. But we have a cross, and I've I've been enough time on that. We want to go on. Verses, that was verse 18, where they crucified him. That means they nailed him to a cross and they're gonna and suspended him in air where he hung between heaven and earth, just like he had said he would. John chapter 3, he said he would. Right. Remember? John chapter 12, he said he would. In John chapter 12, it tells us after he said, I shall be lifted up, it tells us by the Holy Ghost, speaking of what manner of death he would die, meaning he couldn't die a Jewish death, which would be stoning, he had to die a Roman death. In John chapter 3, he had told Nicodemus that as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... Lifting it up in the air, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up. And there were two thieves with him, called malefactors, which is a criminal, a felon, by uh, Luke. But there were thieves, one on his left and one on his right, and they're both cursing him as the crucifixion gets underway, and the three of them are suspended there. We come to the second event of John 19 of the crucifixion. It's verses 19 through 22. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. This was Pilate's choice of words. This was Pilate's order. And he had it put on the cross, and it's pretty extensive in John's account. It's everything we would want it to say just about. Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And Pilate put it there. You know, over the last few weeks, we have seen Pilate's character, Pilate's conscience, Pilate's conviction, Pilate's fear... None of it showing a born-again man. Never forget that. A man not born again can say things and feel things about God, but it's not enough to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and follow him. You've got to remember that. You are going to meet many in life that will say they believe, that say they fear, that say they love, but there's no change in their lives, and that's almost like Pilate. The Bible tells us Pilate feared more after he heard that Jesus might be the son of God. Pilate inquired whether he was a king and Jesus answered that he was a king and that he had a kingdom. But his kingdom wasn't like Pilate's, so Pilate wasn't worried about it and wasn't going to accuse him of sedition. Pilate's wife came to him. Pilate asked him, where did you come from? Jesus didn't answer him. This is the first part of John 19. Whence art thou? Because Pilate was unnerved by Jesus Christ. And Jesus didn't answer him. And Pilate said, don't you know I have power over you? And Jesus said, you would have no power over me at all if it weren't given you from above. Oh. oh, Pilate heard a lot. But he feared man and loved his job too much. And so the Jews manipulated him into crucifying Jesus Christ by threatening him with sedition against Caesar that if you let another man be king, you are not Caesar's friend. And we've been through all that. But here we have Pilate. He gave in to them. He washed his hands, and he said, I am free from the blood of this innocent man. He had told them three times, I find in him no fault at all. They manipulate him into crucifying Jesus, so he orders him to be crucified in the 16th verse. And then he writes this, And we rejoice that the unbelieving Jews had to see this testimony over Jesus Christ, and the believing Jews got to see this testimony over Jesus Christ, which was the result of three trials by the Romans, one by Pilate, one by Herod, and another one by Pilate. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. They didn't understand it, they didn't understand the Christ, they didn't understand the Messiah, they didn't understand the prophecies, they didn't understand the Son of David. They didn't understand that Jesus was king, but here Pilate is writing down the very words that a few day, just a few days earlier, the children had screamed as Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem, Hosanna to the king of Israel. Isn't that beautiful? Amen. So let's pretend that we were there. You want to see the motion? Yes, Pilate! Okay, I would. Jesus of Nazareth the king of the Jews, for what he wrote, but not for what he did. The man should have humbled himself and begged Jesus Christ to forgive him. He had him alone in the judgment hall. They could have had the most fantastic discussion in the history of the world. But they didn't. And so he is said to be a wicked man in the book of Acts. And with wicked hands assisted the Jews in crucifying the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 19, Pilate wrote a title, put it on the cross. The writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Verse 20, this title then read many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city. That would agree with the historical information that I gave you of a third of a mile, possibly. For the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city, and it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin, and that covered them all. If you were a Jew there and hadn't gone to school very much and learned Greek, then you knew Hebrew. If you had gone to school and you were speaking in the language of the intellects, then you'd be speaking Greek. And if you were a Rome, Roman soldier from Italy, you'd be speaking Latin. And so the whole crowd's covered. Isn't that beautiful? That deserves another one. In three languages, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, The unbelievers are going to take that word and mock him for it. And the believers would rejoice because they know he is their king. He is our king. We have a king today, King Jesus. The apostles preached that there was another king. The Bible tells us in Acts chapter 17 that in Thessalonica they got in trouble for preaching another king. We have another king. We're strangers and pilgrims in this world. We voted this past Tuesday. We pray for our nation. We thank God for our nation but we have a king that reigns Amen. on high. And he controls everything happen, happening in America at this very hour. Verse 21, Then said the chief priests of the Jews to Pilate, Write not the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Don't put it up there like that, like it's a fact. He just said he was the king of the Jews. What I have written, I have written. What does that deserve? Yes. Yes. <laughs> I like he was manipulated into that crucifixion. He knew that he shouldn't have. He didn't want that stain in the Roman government. But he went ahead and did it out of the fear of man and a love for his profession and and his professional trajectory and his career. But he got a little bit in on them at the end. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, three languages on the cross, and I'm not going to alter it. What I have written, I have written. Next event, verses 23 and 24. Soldiers distribute his clothes. Verse 23, then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, what does that mean? When they had crucified Jesus, took his garments. He was naked. Right. Pilate had brought him forth in a purple robe to the Jews, all battered and bleeding with a crown of thorns beaten into his head by a reed having had his face pummeled by Caiaphas's servants, by Herod's men, and by Pilate's men. No bone was broken. His beard had been ripped out. He was a bleeding mess in a purple robe. And he came out and Pilate said, Behold the man! Look at what you've made me do to him! Look what I've done to him! I am not going to kill him! Because there is, he has done nothing wrong. I find in him no fault at all. This is last Lord's Day. Look at the man. Right. Then they pushed Pilate by manipulation and slander into crucif- ordering the crucifixion of Jesus. And the Bible tells us they took that purple robe off him and put his own clothes back on him for the one-third of a mile walk to Calvary And then at the cross, crucifixion was strip him naked and nail him to that wooden cross and suspend it in air. My Lord, I see all of you are quite clothed today. He was stripped naked. And Psalm 22, if you read that last evening, they stare at me. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments. The garments are off his body. They're in their hands and made four parts to every soldier apart because these were his undergarments. You know, clothes aren't as plentiful as you have them today. These are soldiers in a foreign country. They took his undergarments. He would have been wearing some decent clothes because there were people that cared for him. And in these contexts, we are told the women from Galilee ministered to him. And these women loved him and they put... They anointed his body and prepared it for burial before burial. John chapter 12, at the time of burial, after the time of burial, Joseph and Nicodemus did the same. But they took his undergarments and divided them because there were four, and this was a quaternion of soldiers, and they divided to every soldier a part. There were four parts, four soldiers, and also his coat. Now the coat didn't have any seams, and it couldn't be torn. It wasn't going to be ripped. They didn't want to do that to it because it would destroy it. So they cast lots for it. In verse twenty four they cast lots for it, and one ended up with that unif- that, that uh, coat that he had, the outer garment that he had, that had no seams in it. I love verse twenty-four for the sovereignty of God right. and the fulfillment of Scripture. Right. They said therefore among themselves, Let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, They parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. Do you know what the word therefore means? Therefore is a logical, rhetorical word. Therefore is the conclusion of an argument. Because of this premise and this premise, therefore, this is true. Why did the soldiers cast lots for his garment? To fulfill scripture. Did they know scripture? It doesn't matter if they knew scripture or not. They fulfilled scripture. And so that last sentence of verse 24, these things, therefore, the soldiers did. What is the therefore, therefore? Because it was written in scripture. Right. You say, is, is God always operating like that? Yep. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. They were fulfilling his will perfectly. Peter will stand up in Acts chapter 2 and stand up in Acts chapter 4 and said that you with wicked hands did everything that had been determined by the determinate counsel of God. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. They were still guilty for what they did, but what they did fulfilled every scripture. Amen. Praise the Lord for verse 24. Amen. They said therefore among themselves, who sa- who made them talk among themselves that they should cast lots for this one garment? the Lord God of heaven, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ did. That the scripture might be fulfilled in Psalm 22 and verse 18, and I hope you read it last evening. I love that. We just had an election this past week, and let me tell you something. What happened, happened according to the determinate counsel of God. Known unto God are all his works from the foundation of the world. Acts 15 and verse 18, he raises up kings and he puts down kings. He raises up the house of representatives and he puts it down. He changes its mix and you trust him. We did our part. We're going to continue to pray for our nation as we have, and God's going to take care of us. Amen. And you don't have to worry or fret. Amen. Verse 25 through 27 is the fourth event of the crucifixion. As John records it, he assigned his mother to John Zebedee. Verse 25, now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleophas, That's Mary, Mary, the mother of James the Less, that you heard and read in the other gospel accounts, and Mary Magdalene, the woman out of whom Jesus had cast seven devils. And this woman was a very close friend of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ appeared first of all to Mary Magdalene. Mark 16 and verse 9. Not to James, not to John, not to Peter, to Mary Magdalene. And I hope that you women recognized... That the Bible accounts, inspired by the Spirit of God and written down by men, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four of them want you women to know that there were women that Jesus loved and that they loved Jesus and they were close to him and they didn't all run away like the disciples did. Right. And they were from Galilee, which was 80 miles away, and they ministered to Jesus out of their substance, taking care of him during his ministry. And Mary Magdalene was as wicked as they come, possessed of seven devils, and Jesus appeared first of all to her. Don't any woman or girl in this church ever fear about whether you can have a close personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You can have just as close and personal of a relationship with Jesus Christ as any man ever has. Because we are equal heirs together of eternal life, and in heaven there is no marriage, nor male, nor female. And I, I, I love reading these passages. And I love Mark sixteen nine that Jesus appeared first of all to Mary Magdalene. You say, does that even some girl or woman here today? You say that can I can I have a relationship like that? Absolutely, yes. Right. Why do I press all the men to be like David? Press the men to be like Paul? Run their Christian race like him? But when it comes to places like this in the Scripture, I want to encourage you. You don't need any man for relationship with Jesus Christ. You don't need a father for relationship with Jesus Christ. You don't need a husband for relationship with Jesus Christ. And you certainly don't need a pastor for relationship with Jesus Christ. I don't want to miss anything when I read these passages. And since Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all want to mention the women that were there, I want to mention the women that were there. And they had followed the Lord Jesus Christ all the way from Galilee. Do you think they were worried about whether the dogs and cats would be fed and the goldfish would have their food? They were like Mary that sat at the feet of Jesus and didn't worry about things like that in comparison to being with their Lord. And some of them likely, likely based on the facts of where they were and what they did, may have grasped his crucifixion more than the apostles did. Verse 26, When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple standing by whom he loved. Why doesn't he just say a name? Because it's John in John's writing. And he's going to show a little humility and modesty here. Now, if you read all the way through John, by the time we get to the end, he will say, I'm the one. But starting in chapter 13, he's going to say the disciple that Jesus loved about five times, and then number six, it's me. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Wonderful. Does Jesus have favorites? I've preached this to you before. Did Jesus have three favorites that lived in Bethany? Two women and and a man. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They loved each other. They were very close. Out of the 12 apostles, there were three favorites. Peter, James, and John. There's no reason for anyone in here not to choose to be a favorite of the Lord Jesus Christ. Love him more than anyone else. Jesus would ask Peter this question. Simon... Son of Jonah, lovest thou me more than these? You have three options with that question. Peter, do you love me more than these 318 fish I just helped you catch in one cast of the net? That's ridiculous. Peter, do you love me more than you love these other ten apostles? That's ridiculous. Peter, do you love me more than these other ten apostles love me? Peter said, Lord, thou knowest all things. Because he had opened his mouth before the crucifixion and said, though all the others will deny you, I never will. So Jesus was back after him. Do you want to be one of my favorites, Peter? Do you love me more than these other ten love me? Does everyone hear me this morning? Amen. Brigida, you be the one that loves Jesus more than anyone else in this church. Amen. I'm not going to go down without a fight but I would love for you to try to beat me. And I mean that to every single person in here. Amen. Verse 26, When Jesus therefore saw his mother, and the disciples standing by, John Zebedee, John the son of Zebedee, whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Notice the exclamation point. This is with emphasis. He's not being disrespectful to Mary, calling her woman. No way. Jesus honored Mary as much as he possibly should for for the glory of God and to keep all the law of God, but he also is not going to give Roman Catholics one inch to take in their veneration of a woman compared to him. She is not a co-mediatrix. She didn't do one thing to save anyone from their sins. She needed Jesus to save her from her sins as much as anyone else did. And she's told Elizabeth about I rejoice in God my Savior about the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mother, this is your new son. But, woman, behold thy son. He was directing Mary's attention to John Zebedee standing next to her. John's going to take care of you. I am the eldest son, I am dying. And on the cross, he honored his parents. Incredible. I did not honor my parents the way I should have in my early teen years. And I thank God that through the righteousness of Jesus Christ in the sight of God, I honored them perfectly through his finished work on the cross for me. Woman, behold thy son. Mother, John will take care of you from now on. He's your son because I am leaving. And then he says to John, in verse 27, Behold thy mother. That's your mom. Take care of her. And the Bible tells us that we know exactly the interpretation. And from that hour, that disciple took her unto his own home. So John Zebedee took Mary from then on. You know, tradition says she lived another 15 years, but we don't know or care. The Bible doesn't tell us so we don't care. We just know that she was there in the upper room in Acts chapter 1. Oh, yes, she was. And she would have seen the day of Pentecost, which was the fruit of her son's death. The, the, the power of the Holy Spirit changing Peter and the other apostles was the power of her son's death and the reward from God to him of the Holy Ghost, which he then gave to the church, which Peter explained in that first sermon in Acts chapter 2. The fifth event, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished. Everything that needed to be accomplished to that point. His resurrection wasn't accomplished. His ascension wasn't accomplished. But everything that needed to be accomplished to that point had been accomplished. And Jesus knew it. Jesus had a checkoff list in his heart and in his head. From a child. Know ye not that I must be about my father's business? This is your Lord. What a death he died for us. Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished to that point, everything else had been fulfilled, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, He had something else to get out of the way. Another prophecy to get out of the way from Psalm 69 and verse 21 said, I thirst. It's in John. It's not in the others. This was to fulfill Psalm 69. Up to that point, he knew that everything had been done just the way that it should be done. The scriptures have been fulfilled. And to fulfill that scripture, he said, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar This was the common ration of the Roman soldiers to have sour wine, which quenched thirst, and you didn't need very much of it. They filled a sponge with vinegar, put it upon hyssop, and put it to his mouth. And he received it. He didn't spew it out like he had the anesthetic that was given to him when he was first nailed to the cross. But as soon as he received it, because he had said, I thirst, we have verse 30. When Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. He had then added in, I thirst. It was now finished, everything that was expected of him, and he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. And his final words were not, it is finished. His final words were giving up the ghost. He said, Father, into thy hands I commend my ghost or spirit. He, he, gave, he gave up his spirit, which is the best way to die. Yeah, to be so prepared in your love of Christ, your confidence in Him, your faith in Him, to know that when you are drawing close to that last breath, you are able to say with Jesus, Father, He's our Father too by adoption. Father, into Thy hands I commend my spirit. Did did anyone else die just like that in the Bible? Stephen. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And let that thing go. You don't need to be gripping the bed holding on. Raise your hands and grip the one who's going to be waiting for you on the other side of the curtain of death. And say, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. We'll take care of your body. We'll put it in the ground and plant it so that a new body can come out in the great day of resurrection. When Jesus had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. An angel had declared his specific mission, and that was to save his people from their sins. And by dying on the cross, he took the death that we deserved. He had said that his mission in John chapter 6, he was sent down from heaven for all those that God had given him, that he should not lose a single one of them, but should raise them up again at the last day. Nothing more can be said. If Jesus, Jesus finished it, who can condemn So Romans 8 says, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. And he bowed his head, and he gave up the ghost. It's very interesting as you read through these different accounts, the centurion saw that Jesus laid down his life. Did you notice that, brother? He saw that he gave up the ghost. Remember in John 10, Jesus had said, in John 10, I have power to lay my life down and I have power to take it up again. This commandment have I received of my Father and my Father loves me because I'm going to do this. John 10, 14 through 18. And so Jesus gave up the ghost. He was nailed there on the cross. He hung there for six hours. John doesn't tell us anything, does he? No darkness. He doesn't tell us the hours. He just told us that he was sentenced by Pilate at the sixth hour, which we know could not be the sixth hour by Jewish reckoning, because that would be noon, and Mark said he was already on the cross at the third hour, which is 9 a.m., so it had to be by Roman reckoning from midnight, just like we reckon, so that when John says Pilate sentenced him about the sixth hour, right here in John 19, it was 6 a.m., About 6 a.m., as John wrote it. Here's how we'll finish. The crucifixion events proper of our Lord Jesus Christ from all four Gospels. Pilate sentenced Jesus about 6 a.m. in the morning, and he was nailed to the cross at about 9 a.m. The Romans first tried to force Jesus to carry his own cross, but he could not do so. This is from all four Gospel accounts. They then drafted Simon of Cyrene, a city of Libya, to help him carry it the distance to Calvary. This Simon of Cyrene was the father of Alexander and Rufus, two apostolic believers that are mentioned in the Acts of the Apostles and the uh, the Epistles of the Apostles. Their destination was a place called Golgotha. Your Jesus, my Jesus, has been sentenced by Pilate, and he's turned him over to the soldiers to do these things to him. We're summarizing the crucifixion by all four gospel accounts. Their destination was a place called Golgotha in the Hebrew language or Calvary from Latin, the place of a skull, the place of execution, capital punishment. While going there, Jesus warned weeping women of the tribulation that was coming on that generation with the destruction of Jerusalem for them mistreating the Son of God. He said, women, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. That is a generation. Because in 70 AD, the judgment of God fell on the city of Jerusalem. It was leveled to the ground. 1.1 million died by starvation, by killing themselves, by infighting in the city, and by the Romans. And he warns those women. You'll need to go to a different sermon to find all the meaning of those words that were read to you this morning from Luke 23 about that warning. But if if the Jews and the Romans were this cruel in a time of blessing and favor and unity and Jesus being among them, what would it be like when they were not in unity but hating each other and the Spirit of God was fully out of that city? In a dry, Jesus said to those women, If they're doing this to an innocent man in a green tree, what will it be like in a dry tree? They offered vinegar wine with gall or myrrh, which was an anesthetic, but he would not drink of it because Jesus was going to drink the cup of God's wrath. As we've preached recently to you, the cup of Jesus Christ. He said, I have a cup to drink that you don't know of. And that wine was the wine of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God, and he drank the dregs of it, as we saw by looking through the Bible, at the cup of God's wrath. He wasn't going to take any anesthetic. He was going to drink the cup that his father had given him to drink. This drink they offered Jesus with gall was an exact fulfillment of a prophecy of him in Psalm 69, that they gave me gall. He would fully drink the dregs of the Father's cup. They stripped Jesus naked, completely naked. They divided his four undergarments up among them, the four soldiers that were there, and put him on the cross without clothes for public shame. They nailed his hands and feet to this torture device to suspend his weight on them, that is, on the nails. Pilate ordered a sign on the cross above him, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This sign was in the three common languages of the place, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Two thieves, malefactors or criminals, were crucified with Jesus, one on each side of his cross. This fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy that Jesus was counted with criminals, Isaiah 53, 12. The crucifixion, lifting Jesus up on a Roman cross, took place at about 9 a.m. that day. Jesus, after being put on the cross, Call on his father to forgive the ignorant soldiers. What a display of the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. Stephen also did that by calling on God and the Lord Jesus Christ not to lay this sin to their charge as the Jews stoned Stephen to death in Acts chapter 7. That is learning the fellowship of his sufferings. We should be conformed to his death, being willing to die ourselves and suffer loss ourselves like he did for us. The soldiers divided his garments that were separate pieces, one piece to each soldier. They cast lots for his coat of one piece, rather than tear it, to fulfill scripture from Psalm 22 and verse 18. The soldiers sat and cruelly watched Jesus die, and it says so, naked and suffering and vulnerable. David had prophesied of Jesus that his executioners would look and stare, Verse 17 of Psalm 22. Jews and Romans that passed by the public place reviled Jesus and tossed their heads. Listen to the mockery when it's pulled from all four Gospels. They mocked him for his words that they had perverted to blasphemy about destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. They were destroying the temple right then. Did he raise it up in three days? Indeed, he did. They mocked him as the Son of God, daring or tempting him to prove it, just like the devil had. If you're the Son of God, cast yourself off this temple. His angels will bear you up. They mocked him as being the Son of God, because if he were God's Son and God delighted in him, surely God would save him. Do you know how hard that would have been to take? He was the Son of God. They mocked him as being a Savior. For they said, he saved others, but himself he cannot save. He was a Savior. He was a glorious Savior. They mocked him as being a king, promising to believe him as king and Christ if he would get down from the cross. They mocked him about his faith. He trusted in God. Why isn't God coming to your aid? You trusted in God. He did trust in God from his mother's breast, Psalm 22 told us. He never lost his faith in God. Though God forsook him in the way of fellowship and affection, notice how he died. Father, oh, that is faith. That is faith. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. But they mocked him for his faith. Let me repeat those very quickly. They mocked him for his words about the temple being destroyed and raised up in three days. They mocked him as the son of God like Satan did. They mocked him as the son of God and God's delight, that God didn't delight in him or he would have rescued him from the cross. They mocked him as not being a savior. They mocked him as not being a real king. And they mocked him for not having real faith in God. All this mockery of God forsaking Jesus had been prophesied. Let me read this verse to you that I know is misunderstood sometimes. It's from Isaiah 53. And it's verse 3. No, it's verse 4. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Isaiah is writing as the Jewish nation rejecting Jesus. And Isaiah wrote, we did esteem him stricken, Smitten of God and afflicted. When, when we as a Jewish sinful nation, all we like sheep have gone astray, when we like sinners looked at Jesus on the cross and he had said God was his father, it appeared to us that he was being stricken and smitten and afflicted by God. That's Isaiah 53, verse 4. God truly forsaking Jesus had also been prophesied graphically by David in Psalm 22. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Matthew, Mark, Psalm 22. Not only did common people mock him, so did the chief priests, scribes, and elders that should have known better. Not only did those passing by mock him and the chief priests, scribes, and elders, but so did the two thieves dying beside him, at least to begin with. Before the darkness, one thief rebuked the other for his hypocritical mocking of Jesus. What happened to that thief? Jesus, while dying for you and me, was giving life to a thief on the cross that had been cursing him, but he spoke him into regenerated life because he confessed that Jesus was Lord and King and had a kingdom. That was more than any of the Jewish leadership practically had confessed, and to confess it so openly, glorious. While he's dying, he's saving. While he's dying, he's honoring his mother. While he's dying, he's forgiving those that were torturing him. What a savior. The born-again thief confessed Jesus as Lord, so Jesus promised him heaven that day. So we have a song that we circulate, Too Small a price." that being crucified as a thief beside Jesus was a very small price to pay to be able to die with these words in your ear, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. The born-again thief confessed Jesus as Lord, so Jesus promised him heaven that day. Jesus saw his mother nearby with two other Marys and charged her to John's care. There was darkness over all the land during the third watch of the day from 12 noon to 3 p.m. Jesus has hung in daylight from 9 a.m. to 12 noon. From 12 noon to 3 p.m. there was darkness over all the earth. At 3 p.m. Jesus shouted with a loud voice in Hebrew, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why had God forsaken him? Because of how wicked you and I are. That's right. That's right. This perfectly fulfilled the prophecy of Psalm 22 that opens with these exact words. The Jews, experts in Hebrew, heard him cry to God, My God, my God, Elohim, Elohim, experts in Hebrew experts in Psalm 22 verse 1 but they mocked him by saying he must be calling for Elijah. The Jews knowing Hebrew mocked him by suggesting Elijah the messenger of Jesus Christ. Jesus was far greater than Elijah meaning John the Baptist in fulfillment of Malachi chapter 4. Jesus, in order to fulfill scripture, and also perfectly true because of Psalm 22, cried out that he was thirsty. This fulfilled Psalm 69, where the prophecy was vinegar to drink for his thirst. Psalm 69 has two parts. One has gall being delivered to him, and one has vinegar being delivered to him. Beautiful. Beautiful. One of the many onlookers extended some of the soldiers' vinegar to Jesus to drink. The rest of the crowd discussed mockingly whether Elijah would come to save Jesus. Jesus cried again with a loud voice that his work of redemption was fully finished. A loud voice. It is finished! Oh, yes, Lord! He that spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? He purchased everything for us with that death. His loud cry indicates that he still had strength to live, but he would lay his life down. He received that little bit of vinegar to quench thirst momentarily, but he had already purposed. Everything was fulfilled. I've got the I thirst out of the way. I can give my spirit back to my father. What a savior. Jesus gave up his spirit into the presence of God with words to that specific effect. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And the centurion saw that he willingly died with those words. At the point of his death, the massive temple veil was torn from the top to the bottom opening the way into God's presence for you and me. At the time of death, there was an earthquake, the rocks were rent, and the graves were opened. And when Jesus rose from the dead, the residual power of his resurrection caused those bodies in those open graves to now pop the tops on their caskets, get up, and come into Jerusalem. Hey, how you doing? That is our Lord. Amen. The supervising centurion and his company feared and confessed Jesus as God's son. This supervising centurion, an expert in death, witnessed that Jesus gave up his life to fulfill John 10, among other places. There were many women present as well that had observed the crucifixion from afar. Some women during his ministry, especially in Galilee, had followed and served him, and the Lord jams all this in to the verses about his crucifixion. The crowd knew that unusual things had occurred, and they smote their breasts when they left, that something had happened that day, three hours of darkness, the way that Jesus spoke on the cross, the earthquake, the temple veil being rent. Yes, something happened that day. A generation shall come, the people that shall be born, who shall declare that he hath done these things. And so we declare them today and we believe them. Jesus, the Son of God, our Lord and our Savior, died a Roman crucifixion death on the cruel cross of Calvary or Golgotha, the place of a skull of public execution. But as soon as we can get to John chapter 20, he rose from the dead, and he's coming for us soon. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen.